Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. One of the most stirring questions in the entire Bible was asked by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he said, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It's difficult to think of a question that contained such high stakes, such weighty issues as this one. But here we have it. The entire world with all of its possessions, wealth, pleasures, beauty, fame, and intellectual pursuits, and yet, on the other side of the equation, on the other side of the scale, is one thing, your soul, the real you, the you that will live forever and forever, for all of eternity. And the answer should be obvious, shouldn't it? But sadly, many people go through life without ever asking themselves this question. Tragically, many are selling their souls a day at a time for things that, well, they just won't matter in a hundred years from now. And that's why, on our program today, we would like you to stop and to consider it for a moment. Is there anything in this world that is worth losing your soul for? On today's broadcast, evangelist Mr. Eugene Higgins takes a long, hard look at this question, taken from Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. For the next half hour, we trust that you will seriously consider the issues that really count. Mark chapter 8. The Lord Jesus is the speaker, and in verse 36, he asks, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I would like to just take this question. There is something almost haunting about it in its directness and in what it appeals to in our thinking. It is presenting to us the infinite value of individual human beings, and it is stretching our thinking beyond this life to factor in the great truths of eternity. I just want to make three simple statements about this. And the first is this, that no man or woman has ever gained the whole world. We should look at what's at stake here now. The Lord Jesus is using this term whole world in the same sense in which we would use it. He is presenting to us the enormity, the impossibility of all of this. Imagine the whole world. Now, mostly what a person wants is not the whole world, just a little more of the world than he has. But you must understand that the world, first of all, is very large compared with what you have. When a person looks at the world around him and thinks of what he has, the world seems very large, very large. And I think it is vital to remember that its architect is called the god of this age, the devil. And he has skillfully fashioned a world that can so amuse us and so distract us that we scarcely realize that we are on the wrong side of the doors of paradise, that... We lack a relationship with God. The society he has sculpted around us seems to be real, seems to draw us. And again, when we compare it with what we have, it looks like it has so much to offer and so much to gain and so much to enjoy because it is very large compared with what you have. But the architect of this world has designed it 
to distract you from what is really important. You may remember from your English literature the uh, short story, The Necklace, by Guy de Maupassant. And he describes um, a woman who goes to a very wealthy friend and borrows jewelries from her, a necklace, for this ball that she is going to. She is not accustomed to moving in that society, but now she's able to go to this ball and she has borrowed now these jewels from her friend. And she's moving in high society and that night she loses the necklace. Ashamed and embarrassed to go to her friend and tell her that she lost it, she begins a whole life of servitude. She, on credit, replaces the necklace, says nothing to her benefactor, gives back this necklace that looks exactly like what she lost, that cost her a king's ransom, a small fortune, and begins the rest of her life to work with her hands to the bone to pay back this staggering debt. De Maupassant points out that years later, old, gray, haggard, worn, this woman who has worked every day of her life, a, a life of servile drudgery, runs into her friend. And brings up the subject about this necklace and is stunned when her friend tells her, Oh, that? Oh, she said, those are just fake. She said, I keep my real jewels locked up. She said, what I lent you was just a fake necklace. And the woman has spent days and days and days and years and her life for something that was fake, for something that wasn't real. And that's exactly what the architect of this world, the God of this age, is doing with men and women. He has them working and laboring and striving for something that is not real. And of course, the allure of the world, the secret of its attraction, is that it has an appealing, a strange fascination for hearts that are empty of any relationship with the living God. You will remember the statement in the Old Testament that says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn them out, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Because the allure of this world is it draws out the hearts, draws out the hearts of men and women who do not know God. Again, it's not that there's anyone here who has set his or her sights on the whole world, that you want everything the world has. But the wealthy farmer of Luke chapter 12 just wanted bigger barns. He didn't want to own all the barns in his country, let alone all the barns in the world. Just bigger barns. And Haman, he just wanted higher glory. And Judas just wanted more money. And the prodigal just wanted greater freedom. You will come to the conclusion that was Solomon's when he said, vanity of vanities, it's all empty. It's like, it's like grabbing a, a fistful of wind. There doesn't seem to be anything that really satisfies the longings of the human heart. I had the privilege of speaking at a funeral today for a man who was born in 1906. Had he survived three more weeks, he would have been 100. The same year he was born, a man named Aristotle Onassis was born. Aristotle Onassis, in 1973, his estimated worth was over $1 billion. And what he said back then was, all that really counts is money. All that really counts is money. It's the people with money who are the royalty now. Then his 24-year-old son Alexander died in a plane crash. And this billionaire, not millionaire, this billionaire, seemed to grow old, absent-minded, irrational, petulant. He lost millions. And not long after that, he died. I think he named his yacht after his daughter, Christina. And this is what Christina said. Now herself a millionaire. This is what she said. Happiness is not based on money. And the greatest proof of that is my family my family. You see, the devil has convinced you that what's missing in your life is you just don't have enough money or don't have a large enough house or don't have a high enough job or not sufficient education. The allure of this world is it attracts hearts that don't know God, that have never had a taste of the real, the real thing of the living waters. The world is very large compared with what you have, but the world 
is very small compared with what you are. Because you see, you are not merely a biological creature with a chemically composed body living in a physical material world. You are a spiritual being inhabiting a body living in this world. And you will exist forever. And when you think of it that way, now you understand the inescapable logic of the Lord Jesus. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Someone has said that we belong to eternity and we are stranded in time. We belong to eternity and we are stranded in time. If you were stranded on an island, what would you do? You would try to make the best of your circumstances, wouldn't you? Well, whatever materials there were, you would try and use them to to at least make life bearable where you were. Well, we are stranded in time, but we are really creatures for eternity. And again, to quote Solomon, Solomon is the one who told us that God has put eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. And not very deep inside every one of us, there is a sense that there must be something more than what I have in life. There must be something more Because the world is very small compared with what you are. But the world is insignificant compared with where you're going. And the moment that you begin to think about eternity, you realize this world is insignificant. Think of the brevity of life. What seems long to us, stretching out endlessly before a young man or woman, is really very short. Even the children here understand how time seems to have a comparative speed to it, that school days seem to be long, and summer holidays just race by, right? Well, the longest life, the longest life is like a summer day, quickly gone. James says our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Job said my life is like that eagle that hastens to the prey, moving so rapidly from the heights to the grave, to death. Because when you think of life, you realize, as the psalmist said, how short our time is, how temporary everything is. Evie Hill is a very unique preacher who um, works in an inner city area with very poor families and people. And he had the opportunity once in a large southern city, he had the opportunity to address a rather affluent audience. And in his unique style, he said that he had looked around their neighborhood and he said he just sensed that something was missing. And he said, I finally figured out, I know what's missing. He said, you don't have any graffiti in your neighborhood. And he said, I'm volunteering, (laughs) I'm volunteering to provide the graffiti. He said, I'm going to go buy a can of paint. And he said, I'm going to go through your neighborhood. And he said, I think I'll paint on your million-dollar homes and on your European sports cars. Just one word, temporary, temporary. There's not a thing you have, there's not a thing you have that's permanent except your soul. They say, and it may be a mere legend, that Alexander the Great asked to be buried with his hands open like this across his chest so that his soldiers, even his generals, would see that the man who owned the world was dying with nothing. Well, now, when you come to die, friend, this is how you will go, empty-handed. You won't take an inch of your real estate. You won't take a penny of your money. You won't even take a friend with you because the world is insignificant compared with where you're going. certainty of death. The Bible says we must needs die. We're like water spilt on the ground that can't be gathered up. The writer of Hebrews tells us it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Death is the experience that separates the soul and the spirit from the body. Death is the experience that demonstrates how vital the soul is. When you think about death and eternity, you realize the crystal clear logic of the Lord Jesus, that it would profit you nothing if you gained the world 
but you yourself were lost. Thousand years from now, every person in this meeting will be in either heaven or hell. That is what really matters. No man or woman has ever gained the whole world. But allow me to say this, please. Countless men and women, countless men and women have lost their souls trying to gain the whole world. And again, it may be that, that in the sense in which we're talking, their sights were not on the entire world. They weren't looking for hegemony over the entire globe, but just more of the world. And countless men and women have been so distracted from the important matter of life, salvation, so distracted from the real issue, being saved for eternity, that they have lost their souls trying to gain a little more of the world. Think about Noah's contemporaries. There was a world of material things around them. The way the Lord Jesus puts it is this way. They ate, they drank, they married, they gave in marriage. In other words, they were preoccupied with just the everyday things of life. And they couldn't see the spiritual. They were completely, totally blind to eternal things. And they were thoroughly occupied with the world around them. What about Lot's wife? Imagine having an angel take you out of the city, warn you to leave. Push you down the way. And Lot and his wife and his two daughters begin to start away from Sodom. But Sodom represented a world of comfort and ease and luxury that she did not want to let go of. And somewhere as they, as they made their way down the road, heading toward the mountains, she thought of all that she had left behind and the uncertainties of what lay before. And it was just too much. She just could not let go of it. And as far as I understand the passage, the first person to go to hell that day from Sodom Lot's wife. You think about Pilate, and it was the world of business, success, right? climbing the corporate ladder. Here he's faced with a choice this day. His wife is telling him, don't get involved. His conscience is screaming at him. You can't find anything wrong in this man. This could be your job, Pilate. Be very careful now. If Caesar hears that you let this man go, you may have just reached the last rung on the ladder you're trying to climb. It was too much for Pilate. And he turns the Lord Jesus over to the people. Pilate calls for a basin of water and washes his hands. He could have had his soul washed from his sins that day. But instead, he chose business success. You turn to Felix and it was money, the world of money. You turn to Agrippa and it was the world of pleasure. And I wonder what it is here that is keeping you from coming to the Savior. I wonder what the devil is holding before you that is distracting you from the really vital issue in life. I wonder what he's saying to you tonight that is keeping you from making sure that your everlasting soul will not perish. Arturo Domingo worked for Morgan Stanley on the 44th floor of the South Tower at World Trade Center. This is what he said. He said that as he was leaving, after the first plane struck, as he was leaving the tower to escape, there was a man on the below the 44th floor with a bullhorn who was saying this, Our building is secure. You can go back to your floor. If you are winded, there are water and coffee in the cafeteria. Our building is secure. Arturo says he and others went back to their desks, which was on the 60th floor, pardon me. The bullhorn man was on the 44th floor. They had come down the 16 flights. He said, we turned back. How stupid were we, he said. We went back. And then the whole building shook. As above their heads, that second plane hit. And at that point, Arturo said, I ran for my life. I ran for my life. But he said, others who went back to me to that 60th floor died. Here they were starting on the way down. Here they were beginning to escape. Here they were heading toward life. And he turned back. 
maybe on the very chair in which you're sitting, I wonder how many people thought deeply, seriously, about Christ and then turned back. And I wonder whether there's someone here tonight. And you will join the army of people who lost their souls trying to gain just a little more of the world. No man or woman ever gained the whole world. Countless men and women have lost their souls trying. One man came to provide salvation for the whole world. And that's the man I want to tell you about tonight. Do you know what his purpose was in coming? Here is how the Bible puts it. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. The woman of John 4 She tells the men about the man who told her everything she had done. And they say to her, we have found out that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Paul uses that word when he says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the purpose that he had in coming. John reminds us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And the Lord Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And what was happening that day at Calvary, that April day in the year 33, that, my friend, was the most important half day in the history of our world. He had come for this purpose. He had come to go to that tree. He had come to save the world. And he was giving his life and sacrificing himself and shedding his blood so that a world of sinners could be saved. I love the way the poet put it when he says, what means a a universal call if there be not enough for all? As if the Savior passed some by while he for others' sins did die. They never can the sinner reach who crippled thus the gospel preach. God at Calvary was providing salvation for the world. And the price he paid, the price he paid, is given to us in his own words. He said, the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John wrote later, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. The Lord Jesus said, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. John would say at the beginning of his gospel, this is the true light, which coming into the world is the light for all men. Here is where God wants to bring you, friend, to Calvary, to Calvary. Perhaps there's someone here who is making the same mistake I made. If that's the case, then I would like to be frank with you and tell you about my mistake. Because whenever I approached salvation, whenever I thought about being saved, whenever I sat in a gospel meeting and the preaching hit me and I began to think seriously about salvation, my starting point was always myself. Where it began and my thinking was, okay, what am I supposed to do? There would always be a search inside as I would try to see, how can I believe this strongly enough? And, and what does God want me to do? And, and, and maybe I have to, maybe I have to admit that I'm the, the worst sinner in the world, or I have to just kind of give up, or it always, it always began with me. And the night that I was saved, my search for salvation began with Christ. God turned me to see what his son had done. Trusting him was just the, If you'll allow me to use the word natural, just the natural response of someone who discovered this man died for me. He loved me and died for me to put away my sins. Here's the remedy that God is offering me, and I took it. Genesis chapter 3, Adam opened the floodgates and pouring into our world like a tidal wave, like like a tsunami, came this awful, this deadly, this, this destructive, this devastating thing called sin. But I am glad to tell you tonight that there is nowhere in our world that sin has reached that the remedy is not available. That what Christ did at Calvary is for the world. There is no one tonight who has been affected by sin who cannot find the remedy in Christ because he gave his life a ransom for all. 
That is the price he paid. And the provision he made is given to us in his own words. He said in John chapter 3, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There is the provision God has made. And I could not say it better than Paul did, so let me give you his words. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And now he's committed to us this word of reconciliation. And we say to you, get right with God. Be reconciled to God. Because at Calvary, God was providing a provision enough for you. All that through the suffering, through the sacrifice, through the death of his son. I can tell you tonight there was someone who loves you so much he was willing to give his life so that you would not go to the lake of fire, so that you would not perish. Now, what are you going to do with that man tonight? Chase a better job? Jump on the treadmill and go after some more money? Forget about eternity and chase after the world's winds and try to grab a fistful of air, vanity of vanities, as Solomon said? Or will you tonight as a guilty sinner hurtling through time toward an eternal judgment, will you tonight turn and trust this man who died for you? Because this man presents salvation as a priority and says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. To put it in simple language, the Lord Jesus taught this. When it comes to your soul, no other gain is comparable. And no other loss is preferable. A job, a friend, an ambition. Because there is nothing worse than losing your soul for eternity. Now I have a question for you. What is there on the other side of death for a soul who is lost that is so terrible that the Lord Jesus said it would be good if you'd never been born? What is so terrible on the other side of the grave that the Lord Jesus says it's better if you'd never seen the light of day than that you should go there? My friend, this is important. This is vital. This is urgent. And may God bring you to the point tonight where you realize it's your soul and it's heaven or hell for your soul forever. And I hope his words burn their way into you tonight. And while this may sound unkind, it's the greatest kindness I could wish for you. I hope you will not be able to sleep tonight as you think of these words. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There's one man who gave his life to save your soul. Trust him tonight and join us in heaven forever. So what will it be? How are you going to answer this question? We hope that you have come to this conclusion at the end of our message today. It will profit you absolutely nothing. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ who died to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Don't take thought any longer of pursuing a godless life of temporary earthly gain. Trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and take possession of the true riches of salvation, eternal life with Him in glory. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and a very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website 
at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.